I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Can We Talk from Safe Space Radio. There are a lot of things that take real courage to say. Asking for help is one of them. Even the whole idea of asking for help is counterintuitive to us. We don't want to do it. But everybody needs help at some point, and the way we ask can have a big impact on whether or not we get what we need. Over the next hour, we're going to hear stories from people who never plan to have to ask for help. What if my family had seen me? What about my friends that I worked with could see me? You feel lower than low. I mean, really, you do. And we'll be hearing about the surprising happiness that can follow, set in motion by the act of asking itself. I can't tell you how many people actually thanked me for asking for help. That's all coming up on Safe Space Radio. This is Can We Talk, the show from Safe Space Radio about subjects we'd struggle with less if we could talk about them more. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. For the next hour, we'll be talking about asking for help, how, when, and why we do it, how it can change our relationships, and why it can feel so difficult to name what we need. Behavioral scientists have long said that people tend to assume the worst outcome when we ask for help. In other words, we anticipate rejection. Our confidence is low before we even start. Researchers at Columbia University did a study about this in 2008. The scientists Francis Flynn and Vanessa Lake had participants approach strangers on the street and ask if they could borrow a cell phone. They found that every single participant underestimated how many people would be willing to help. We decided to try it and learn a little bit more about asking for help. Okay, so I'm here on the streets of Portland, and I'm going to do this really quick experiment, which is I'm going to ask a lot of people if they will help me by lending me their cell phone. And I'm just going to see if strangers will actually do that. I'm thinking that I'm going to probably ask like three to five people, and at least two of them will say yes. Excuse me, can I ask you for help? I have lost my cell phone. I wondered if I could please borrow your cell phone just for a really quick second. I just have to make a local call. All right. I approached a man and a woman sitting together on a bench, and they just shook their heads and said no. They didn't give a reason. It's awkward. Excuse me, sir. I'm sorry to bother you. Can I ask your help for a minute? I have lost my phone, and I need to just make a really quick call. If I promise to be really fast, would it be okay with you? It's a local call. Sure. Well, how about if I dial? Okay, perfect. Yes, that's a good idea. Okay. Excuse me. Can I ask you for help? I have lost my cell phone, and I wondered if I could borrow it just to make a quick local call. Yeah, I lost my phone like last month, and no one was helping me, so. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so you know. Yeah, I know the struggle. I was at a rest stop, and my phone was locked in my car, and so oh, no. <laughs> I got you. Thank you. Thank you so much. The part that surprised me about this experiment was not that most people were, in fact, willing to help. It was the sense of connection I felt when somebody did. When I expressed my gratitude, people really responded. It was a wonderful feeling. It's important to acknowledge, though, that I am a white woman and I was professionally dressed, which likely influenced how people responded to me. But given what a positive experience it can be to ask for help and receive it, why do we anticipate rejection? What does it take for us to admit that we can't always make it alone? In this hour, we'll hear stories from people who really didn't want to ask for help who put it off, sometimes until it was a matter of life and death. Some of these stories may sound a little extreme, but the more we explored this topic, the more I became convinced that a lot of the things that make asking for help difficult also apply to the smaller, day-to-day -day ways that we may need help, yet struggle to ask. Once a week, Leon Robinson calls his parents. They're getting up there in years, but he's always made it a point to talk to them regularly. Leon is a veteran of both the Air Force and the Army. Now he works as a truck driver in Florida. But a decade ago, he lived in Honolulu, Hawaii, and he was homeless. I would just call in like once a week, check on him, let them know I was okay, that I was still alive. You can't fool parents. I'm sure that they knew something was wrong, but I would never tell them. You know, because I mean, at the time, my parents are in their 70s, they're in their 80s now. My, you know, and I, they don't need that kind of stress on them, wondering if I'm going to live or die the next day. Leon's parents still don't know that he was ever homeless. He never told them, and he never asked them for help. When I left the divorce court back in 2007, I literally walked out with nothing 
and uh, that's when the homelessness started. Let me put it this way. I have never known terror than those four years that I was homeless. And the thing was, I was always lucid, at least I tried to be. But then alcohol made its play. So a lot of times at night, it was the only thing that would let me sleep. There were times where I, I literally could not sleep because I was in pure terror because I never knew what was coming. I remember one time I was sleeping outside and I was by in a covered area, and by the time I'd woken up, I, it only started raining, and I was drenched completely from head to toe with no change and no, no change of clothes or anything to go on. So I literally had to walk around while my clothes mildewed on my body. Suicide did cross my mind, but I always, it always, I had one single force in me that kept me alive all that time. And um, for about four years, that particular force was probably the reason why I actually stayed alive. What force was that? Honestly, hatred. I hated my situation. I hated how I got there. I hated the fact that I had no power to deal with it. And I constantly wondered what I could do to get out of it. Did you believe that you deserved to get help? No. All I could think was, I did this to, I, how did I do this? What if my family had seen me? What about my friends that I worked with could see me, you know? One night, Leon got caught in the pouring rain. He'd been homeless for almost four years at that point. I was out of energy. I was out of options. I was out of my mind. And I just looked up and I cried out to God. I said, Lord, I don't know what to do. You know, I said, what do I do? I, I give up. I can't do this. And you know, like the still voice, you know, like what God said to Elijah, you didn't hear it in the hurricane, you didn't hear it in the earthquake. You hear that little thought in the back of your mind, this is what it was. Go to the VA and go to U.S. vets. And that's what I did. I admitted to myself that I simply couldn't do it alone. And I, I was relieved that I didn't have to. What was it that kept you from going to the VA before? Pride, thinking that no one could help thinking no one understood. The U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness estimates that just under 10% of all homeless adults are veterans, although other studies suggest that vets may account for up to a quarter of all people experiencing homelessness. A lot of veterans don't trust the VA and think that there is really no hope for them. And in the, in the military, once you're out, they really don't care about you either. Were you afraid that they would judge you? I knew they would. I mean, because I knew what I would say. I had condemned myself, and I naturally thought that they would too, but they certainly surprised me. I want to pause on the word pride. Leon wasn't the only person we interviewed who used this word when talking about asking for help. Pride is technically one of the seven deadly sins, but it's also something a lot of us in this country are taught to strive for. We're taught that we should take pride in ourselves, our identity, our accomplishments. Pride can be another way of saying we feel a sense of our own worth. But pride is not the opposite of shame. Rather, it's the denial of shame. Pride can compel us to cover up our vulnerability. It might make us want to push people away. It can make us judge ourselves harshly for fear others will do the same. If we don't think we deserve help in the first place, asking for it becomes practically impossible. This might be the number one reason we struggle to ask for help. You know, I, I don't know about you, but most of the people I know are pretty hard on themselves. That's Nora Bouchard, the author of the book Mayday, Asking for Help in Times of Need. This is such a cliche, but I always go back to the little speech that the flight attendants give at the start of a flight that you need to put your mask on first before you can help anyone else. And to me, that is the same exact kind of behavior that you have to show yourself. It does feel like that is a big obstacle for people in asking for help, is believing that they deserve it, that they're worthy of help. I'll tell you, Anne, one of the things that I think people really struggle with is to use that word help. It's a hard word for us to say. And in fact, when I was writing the book, I struggled because we don't actually have many words that act as synonyms for help. And so I was kind of getting bored using the same <laughs> ones over and over again. So it's almost like our language reflects our cultural discomfort. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. And even when I'm working with leaders in organizations, it becomes a really powerful tool to use that word. When you're talking to a direct report and you say, you know, I really need your help on this, it's amazing. People's brains just completely attune. They, they just zero in on that. And people start responding like, yeah, I'm happy to help. Yeah. Okay. Use the H word. Use the H word. Exactly. <laughs> Why do you think that we have such a cultural avoidance of dependency or of appearing dependent on one another? Well, here in the U.S. especially, I think our culture, the foremost value that we have as, as a country is on independence. I mean, our founding document is written about independence. And in fact, most of us have created lives of such self-sufficiency that there's really not much of a push for us to reach out and ask for what we need. So we talk ourselves into thinking that nobody's going to help. But in fact, when we do ask, more than likely, we will get a positive response. So we get help. And then I think also our, our relationships change. We start seeing each other in a little different light. Instead of seeing ourselves as superhuman, we see each other as really human. There are so many ways our culture vilifies those who need help or assistance, as if it's a character flaw or a moral failing. In 2017, the Pew Research Center found that 45% of Americans agreed with a statement that people who are poor have it easy because they are eligible to receive government benefits. Our culture idealizes this idea of pulling yourself out by your bootstraps, but research shows that many factors out of our control as basic as the neighborhood where we grow up, can have a lifelong impact on things like how much money we make, the jobs we get hired for, or whether or not we go to college. Some of us may even have been taught explicitly that we shouldn't ask for help, that we shouldn't need anything. We might even feel this in our most intimate relationships. And yet, is it possible we long for vulnerability as much as we fear it? We'll be exploring that in a minute, after the break. Support for this program comes from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and we're happy to share the following public service announcement. Every year, millions of Americans are exposed to a contagious virus. What is this virus? It's stigma. Stigma promotes an environment of shame, fear, and silence, which prevents millions of people from seeking help. But there's good news. The National Alliance on Mental Illness believes stigma towards mental illness is 100% curable. So do yourself and everyone a favor. Go to curestigma.org and get tested for stigma. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and you're listening to Can We Talk, a show from Safe Space Radio about the subjects we'd struggle with less if we could talk about them more. In this hour, we're exploring how and why we find it so hard to ask for help. I've struggled with this myself. When I was a teenager, my mother never talked to me about puberty. I assumed it was something we weren't supposed to acknowledge. But I started getting a few pimples, and I wanted her help. I was on the sidewalk with my mother, passing a drugstore, and I stopped her and asked her if she'd buy me some Clearasil or some other special soap to wash my face. I hated to ask. It almost felt like I was coming out of the closet or something, like I was admitting to her that I was becoming a sexual being. It felt like a much bigger deal than it was. She said no, she didn't believe those soaps actually helped. I was mortified to ask, and then I was so disappointed. This early rejection had lasting effects. It made me hesitant to ask her for help for a long time. So it's been decades since then, and I decided to ask her about it. I told my mom that asking for help with pimples felt so hard because it felt like an acknowledgement of puberty. But it turned out I wasn't the only one feeling ashamed. Here's my mom, Claire Hallward. My mother didn't talk about this, so I wouldn't know what to say. So I think I thought this was a shameful thing about me. And you didn't know that everybody else went through this? I'm sure I did know that everybody went through it, but I, I, I think I probably thought that no one talked about it because it was so bad. Obviously, I was embarrassed to talk about it, is what it sounds like. I just felt so inadequate. Inadequate at what? 
knowing how to talk about it. Mm, <laughs> I didn't know that, Mum. Well, that's the only uh, only possible truth, isn't it? I mean, why didn't I talk about it? I find that astonishing now. That seems to me that's where I could have asked for help. <laughs> this conversation made me wonder how often we get turned down because the other person, the one being asked for help, isn't rejecting us, but rather doesn't have the confidence to give us what we're asking for. And they may not know how to ask for help either. But what if it doesn't even matter whether we get what we're asking for? What if by the time we're adults, if summoning up our courage to ask can actually be the transformative part? That's what Bob Childs thinks. Bob says that when we ask another person for help, we're really asking them to understand us. But revealing ourselves can be hard. When I was in art school, I went to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, and I had a very good friend there who was from Japan who was a painter. I'd known him for a couple of years, and one day he came up to me and he said, you know, I've known you for over two years now, but I don't think you've ever talked about yourself at all. I was almost three when I was adopted, so I, I had actually been in five different foster homes. You know, the, I think for adopted people, there's always the fear of, a, of being re-abandoned, that if you show yourself, if you show sort of harder feelings, more complex feelings, painful feelings, that you'll, you'll be rejected again or abandoned, and you'll be back you know, back out on the street, should we say, you know, back to that feeling that so many of us who were adopted live with. So I was in my mid-30s, and uh, it became really clear to me that I was at a point in my life where I felt the need to kind of know where I'd come from and to know my birth family. They had told me I was adopted when, when I was four or five. I can remember them saying that. But like most adopted kids, I didn't want to hear that, so I just sort of ignored it, and we never talked about it. To begin the search for his birth family, Bob needed to ask his parents for more details about his adoption. He didn't know where he'd been adopted from. So to bring a question like this to my adopted parents was Mount Everest. It was to climb to the uh, most difficult challenge I could ever imagine for myself. How long had you been wanting to find this out, would you say? I mean, it had always been in the back of my mind. There's this sort of the sense of mystery that you live with. And, you know, in your imagination, you, you come up with all kinds of scenarios about who your birth family was. And, you know, I love baseball, so I, I could imagine, you know, my, you know, my dad was some famous baseball player. You, your imagination just goes wild. But then there's this, also this emptiness or this piece of your story that's, that's not known. You, you have the fantasy that you're searching for your birth family, but you're actually searching for yourself. In my family, we, had always, we always vacationed together every summer. We had an old station wagon that was kind of uh, clunky. And I was sitting in the back seat, and it was summertime. It was end of July. Uh, my dad was driving, and my mom was in the passenger side of the front seat, and I was sitting in the back. What I remember the most is just how profoundly anxious I felt. I could feel my heart pumping and my mouth got super dry. And I wasn't saying anything as they were talking. And then at some point I realized if I didn't do it, I was never gonna do it. So I just sort of interrupted whatever they were talking about. Do you know the agency I was adopted through? I think that's pretty much what I asked. And, and then immediately my mom started tearing up and got very quiet. There was a, a real profound heaviness in the car. Adopted parents, I don't think this is true to just my, my mom or my dad. They often feel that, you know, that their love should be enough. It should be able to heal whatever wounds that child might be bringing with them. So there's Bob sitting in the back seat of the car, surrounded by his family's suitcases, pastures and barns flying by the car window. He waits for his mother to respond. She's very anxious at this point. And finally, she tells me the name of the agency. I was, of course, listening with rapt attention, like the world, the outside world had dropped away. And I had this really interesting experience inside of myself of feeling myself getting smaller. I felt like I was just a very little tiny kid. 
So your story feels to me like an example of asking for help when you know it might cause pain to the person you're asking. Absolutely, yeah. My entire life, it had it has always been hard for me to ask for things. But this raised it to a whole other level of, you know, bringing up something that I knew was going to be painful to, especially to my mom, I knew that. It wasn't just about this question about asking my parents about where I was adopted from, but it meant even more about what it meant to really show myself and show what I really wanted and what I was, what I needed. And I have a great appreciation of how it, it really made, made us closer. And I think ultimately over the years, what changed was that I held myself back less and less and was able to sort of share not just my own experience and my own feelings, but also, you know, to share things, how I felt about them. And, and this was a real breakthrough for me. Research shows that open acknowledgement of adoption has mental health benefits for adopted kids, helping them feel more secure in their identity and better able to make sense of their own story. Many states now make it possible for 18-year-olds to get access to their original birth certificate to help with this process. You know, I think so much of our public narrative about adoption is that the adopted child should be so grateful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's that's a big piece of it, you know, that there and in fact there was a gratitude that I felt towards them. I mean, there's no question about that. But at the same time, it's not all positive. You know, for for any child, of course, every child has a sort of a real range of feelings. But it was very difficult for me to show any of the negative feelings that I had. For someone to ask for help who's already sensitively tuned into other people's feelings, it's risky. I was transformed by being able to ask this question and ultimately to be able to um, have a reunion with my birth family and then to really be able to be much more real with my adoptive family. There's a connection between asking for help and being visible. Asking felt risky, but it also allowed Bob to feel seen as a whole person, by his parents and also by himself. It wasn't only about information. He needed his parents to know that he still had a lot of feelings and questions about being adopted. Asking for help is a way to feel seen and known. Of course, how people see us is sometimes so far beyond our control. Elise Barakaguira has experienced this firsthand. She immigrated to the United States in 2009, seeking asylum. It is hard even to describe my my feelings. You are new, you left everything behind, you have no language, you have nothing. I was kind of lost. There was time that I felt like I have no feeling. I didn't know what to do. Elise is from Burundi in Central Africa. She grew up in a prominent family during a time of civil war and genocide. And she saw her father murdered when she was just 16 years old. As an adult, Elise joined Burundi's political opposition party. She began speaking out, teaching empowerment workshops for women, and for this, she was arrested and tortured. She escaped and fled the country with her three children. Coming here, my plan was maybe when things settle down, I'll go back to my country, but I learned that things are getting worse. And I remember when I got at the airport, I took a taxi to general assistance. And there they connect me with the family shelter. I will never forget tears coming out my daughter's. She was like, Mom, I couldn't understand. How can we ask for food, the basic needs? Like, how can we be in this situation? I remember telling her, at least we are safe. That's the only thing I could say. Do you feel like you finally feel safe? Safety has so many components. Being an immigrant, a woman of color, there is unsafety that is attached to that. But compared to where I was and what I was going through is like, yes, I am. I am safe.
Once Elise decided to seek political asylum, she needed to get legal help. The U.S. government does not provide representation to asylum seekers, so she applied to get the help of a pro bono immigration lawyer. So did you have any sense inside of what this was going to be like or not how much? Mm-hmm. Not at all. Yeah, the woman that I met with, she basically introduced me what asylum is, who is qualified, what are the criteria. And she was like, so I'm going to ask you some question and see if you are eligible to use our services. I was like, what do you mean being eligible? She wanted to know why I'm here and what made me leave, what has happened to me. Trauma is a really hard thing to speak about. And you had been tortured. Did she ask you directly about that? She did, but I wasn't ready to describe myself, what has happened to me. So I said everything, but the part I couldn't talk about, the part of rape and things, I I chose to not answer those questions. Sexual abuse or sexual assault itself is... It is something that is hard to talk about and in my situation the system forced me to open up to a stranger to a person that I don't know. That was the hardest thing that I was taught to do. Elise was initially denied legal help. Without knowing her whole story, the intake lawyer did not feel she had a strong enough case for asylum. But without a lawyer, Elise's chances of being granted asylum dramatically declined. Even the smallest asks for help can make us feel vulnerable. But when we feel ashamed of the reason, it can feel nearly impossible. Asking for help itself, you are vulnerable. And on top of that, when what pushed you to ask for help, it is something deep, shame, rape. It's like being told to rip off your clothes again and being in that situation, that's the hardest thing to do. That is the most difficult thing to do. So it's like you feel so exposed all over again. Yeah. I hate this. You hate this? Isn't it going to be part of my life? I feel like I can detach myself from... uh, Yeah. Right, like you don't want it to be part of your story. No. Right. No. And it is hard because being in America, it is like, it is my story. Being here now, I can't separate myself from my story. And it is frustrating to me. Stigma can make us afraid to tell people about traumatic experiences because we're afraid that that's all they'll see about us afterwards. Like they'll only see us as a victim, not as a whole person. Canadian sociologist Irving Goffman calls stigma a sense of spoiled identity that you can't wash off. Many people who seek asylum have experienced sexual violence. However, fewer than 1% of all refugees and asylum seekers receive mental health care. As an immigrant, the, your, the sense of your true identity is not visible anymore. You are a stranger in a stranger country. It's like you, your true identity is not seen anymore. Eventually, Elise found a therapist. With mental health support, she was able to tell her story and fill out the asylum application. Seven years later, Elise became a United States citizen. Of course, that hasn't transformed the fact that people still make assumptions about her. Yeah, most of the time when people see you in a situation of asking help, they see you as poor person, as someone who cannot contribute to the community. But I'm not that person. I am smart, I'm brave, I'm loving person. I'm someone who, together with other people, if I'm given opportunity, can change the community that I live in. So... That's me. Combating shame and stigma can be a life and death matter. 
Shame silences us, even when our life may literally depend on speaking up. But even the most everyday asks for help can involve revealing tender things. And when we feel vulnerable, we may hesitate, especially if we're asking someone we don't know well or someone we think might be hurt by our question. Practicing with a compassionate listener, as Elise did, can help us break through shame. And feeling less ashamed about asking for help will make it more likely that you'll get what you need. More after the break. Support for this program comes from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, developing solutions to support strong families and communities to help ensure a brighter future for America's children. More information is available at aecf.org. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and you're listening to Can We Talk, the show from Safe Space Radio about the things we'd struggle with less if we could talk about them more. We've been talking this hour about asking for help. Asking for help can be hard, but what about being on the other side when you love someone who needs help but is unable to ask for it directly? Not being asked for help when you know how badly they need it may be just as excruciating as not being able to ask. Lynn Willette learned this from her son, Brendan. What, Brendan? I'm hungry. You're hungry? You're eating a popsicle. There was no room quite big enough for him. He just kind of loved life. He was a daredevil, a risk taker. He would clown around. I remember one Christmas my sister brought my boys Tinker Toys for Christmas, and one of my sons sat and played with the Tinker Toys, and Brendan put the um, container on his head and jumped around and made it fall off and had everyone in hysterics. Years later, when Brendan graduated from high school in 2009, he enrolled in a masonry program and was living with his parents. During this time, his behavior started to change. There was one time that he came into my office demanding money. He was in one of those states where he was really irritable and angry. And he was being relentless and he was really intimidating, which was not his usual way with me. I found evidence of something that I didn't even know what it was, really. At that time, he was spending a lot of time in the basement, and I found tinfoil with these little burn circles on it. And so I started to look up on the internet, what does this mean? I tried to talk to him about it, but he, he didn't acknowledge anything. Finally, Brendan admitted that he was using opiates. Lynn helped him start methadone treatment. It worked. But Brendan didn't want to have to keep going to the clinic every day. As he was tapering off his dose, Brendan relapsed. And I always felt like no matter what, he and I had a connection. It might not be a warm, fuzzy connection, but I felt like he was connected to me. And I felt like I was losing that with him. And so at one point, I just sat down with him and I said, you have some choices here. You can go to one of these places that I've found. I had, I think, three rehabs. Or I'm going to go to the police. There isn't any other choice. Because I felt like, I felt scared. I felt like he's going to die if I don't do something. And at that point, he just broke down and he said, okay, I will go. And it wasn't actually until he was ready to go that he told me that he had been using heroin. When Lynn talks about Brendan, she talks a lot about shame. One of the things that was hard for him was that he didn't, he didn't feel smart. He had to get help with reading when he was in the second grade, and he had to have some special classes and special support. And I think that really felt bad to him. No matter what you said to him, that felt bad to him. He was also diagnosed, not surprisingly, with ADHD. Um, and all of this... I think really affected his self-esteem. So I think some of his spirit got lost along the way. He became a little bit almost shy as he got older, and I think that was part of his feeling about himself. He, I think, had a lot of shame about ways in which he didn't feel good enough. And so rather than ask for help, I think he, he did things that he thought would make him feel better. And 
I think part of his way of coping became substances. He said to me one time, Mom, I don't used to get high. I use so I don't get sick. Do you think that Brendan sort of had his own way of asking for help that was more indirect? Yes. It was not only the words he used, but it was how he said them. And the sense that he conveyed how much of a struggle he was having or the sense of desperation. And um, he looked pained about it. And he was like, I don't know what to do. What can I do? And to me, that was an ask for help. Yeah. Times that he would acknowledge any kind of vulnerability seemed to me like it was an ask for him because he, he didn't usually do that. What was it like for you when he did, when he showed you that vulnerability? It was a relief. Because I felt like he was so guarded much of the time and so he had so much bravado a lot of the time that when he took that down, there was a, you know, I could... It was more like I could see the tender part of him and I could actually reach that. I knew that was there. Some of our best conversations, oddly enough, took place over text messaging. And I think there was a way in which it it put a little distance and he could be more honest and more vulnerable and more open. He would say, I'm sorry, sometimes. And I would say, I'm sorry, too. And we would have these conversations that I felt like, wow, I don't know if we could have said that all in person. Brendan spent two months in rehab. Lynn visited him during the final week. At the end of the week, the recommended plan was that he not come home. It was that he go to an um, intensive residential program. And he didn't want to go. And he started to say, if you don't let me come home, I'll just leave here and I'll find my own way home. I said, I can't, Brendan. I just can't. I'm, I'm still afraid that if you come home, you won't survive. And he said, so you're not going to you're not going to let me come home? And I said, no, I'm not going to let you come home. And I, I walked away in tears. It was very hard to leave. And I don't think I stopped crying till I got off the airplane. I just felt heartbroken. You know, like I abandoned him. According to a 2015 national survey by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, 95% of those with substance use disorders do not want treatment. It can be incredibly difficult to love someone with an addiction. Yet despite Lynn's fears, Brendan completed his stay in the residential program. And I actually remember when he came home, I was so, so happy to see him. Because I missed him, even though he had been such a pain. I was so happy to see him, and he looked so healthy. But Brendan had lost his driver's license, and he struggled to find a job. He moved back in with his parents, and Lynn remembers him feeling stuck and becoming increasingly anxious and depressed. And I started to worry about him, and I could tell something was going wrong. Sometimes he would say, I'm not using anything. You're crazy. You know, it's just it was, felt like there was no way in. You know, I couldn't find the vulnerable spot. I couldn't find an opening. On the, on the day that he overdosed, and this, is, this part's really hard, this part's really hard, I saw him talk to someone in the driveway in a car, and I said to him, Brennan, who is that? Oh, it's just an old friend of mine, nobody you know. And then a little bit later, my husband yelled to me, and he he found that he had overdosed in the basement. And he didn't, he didn't actually die right away. He went to the hospital. Um, my son and my daughter came home. We all did say goodbye. And we made a family decision to turn off the life support. Because he had so much brain damage. to think that if you loved someone enough, that would be the thing 
that would make you try hard enough, that would be the thing that would make a difference, that you'd be sort of unstoppable. And in a way, I feel like I was unstoppable, but it wasn't enough. That's why when it came time to do his obituary, I wanted to put that he died from addiction in there. I didn't feel ashamed of that. It felt really important to me to do it. It's important for people to to acknowledge it. The more people that acknowledge it, the less shame there is. Brendan John Keating, born January 21st, 1991, of Brunswick, passed away on December 16th, 2013, after a fierce and courageous battle with the intractable disease of addiction. Brendan's story is being replayed across the country. In 2017 alone, more Americans died of drug overdose than in the Vietnam and Iraq wars combined. Our culture tends to talk about addiction in moral terms, as a personal failing or a loss of willpower. But substance use often begins as a coping mechanism, a form of relief from things that make us feel ashamed, a kind of solution that ironically compounds shame, making it even harder to ask for help. Shame not only makes it harder for us to get what we want, it can literally threaten our lives. 12-step programs have long popularized an all-or-nothing view of substance use disorders, leading to the widespread belief that abstinence only is the best approach to treatment for all. But when it comes to opiates, the data suggests otherwise. In fact, only 10% of addicted people who try to stop using opiates without medication will succeed. Research shows that medication, such as prescribed methadone or suboxone, is by far the most effective treatment. It is also one of the most stigmatized and underfunded nationwide. There are valid reasons why people are hesitant to ask for help. There's no guarantee when we ask that we'll get the help we need. And rarely we get offered solutions that can even make things worse. We may fear that asking will change the relationship or undermine trust or incur an obligation. So we put it off or we try to go it alone. But sometimes asking for help is transformative, leading to some of the most powerful experiences of our life. That's what happened for Brian Funk. He's worked all over the country as a fundraiser. A couple years ago, he was making enough to live on, but his job didn't offer health insurance and the coverage mandated by law was too expensive. Brian was all too aware of the staggering cost of health care, but he decided to risk it. So it, it's pay for health care and be left with nothing or have half decent health care coverage where I'd be OK, but it's the cost of nearly a mortgage payment. I don't have an extra seven or eight hundred dollars a month to pay for health care. Who does? So in my mind, I thought I'm 28. I'm healthy. I exercise. I eat well. Nothing really catastrophic is going to happen to me. Uh, famous last words. <laughs> Young adults over the age of 26 account for a quarter of all uninsured Americans. They are too old to be covered by their parents' insurance, and coming of age during the financial crisis has left so many people struggling. When Brian got sick, he didn't think about it much. It was winter, and lots of people had the flu. He kept going to work. Six weeks later, he collapsed in the shower. I couldn't put my own shoes on. I was having such difficulty breathing. But he didn't want to go to the hospital. He felt paralyzed by the thought of doing something he couldn't afford. Brian collapsed again a couple days later, this time on the sidewalk. Brian's partner, Tanu, insisted on taking him to the hospital, where he stayed for nine days. You know, my primary care physician, after I was hospitalized, told me that I was minutes to hours at most from losing my life. Brian had a pulmonary embolism, a massive blood clot in one lung. After he got out of the hospital, he left his job, broke his lease, and moved back home with his parents. And then the hospital bills started piling up. I mean, I probably got 15 to 20 pieces of mail with different amounts of money that I owed. It was very much like a, I was just stuffing bills into a drawer for a month <laughs> and was like, oh my gosh, I can't look at this. And then slowly but surely the mail stopped coming. And then I thought, okay, maybe this is it. And so I basically got on the phone with the hospital because I was like, I was really overwhelmed with the fact that I had kind of been bombarded with all of these bills and wanted to make sure that I had a firm grasp on, are there any more bills coming in the mail? 
is this truly the total that I owe? You know, can you guys confirm all of this? What did they tell you that you owed? A little over $19,000. I mean, I just felt a lot of anxiety. And so I just opened up a, a Google Doc on my computer and just really stream of consciousness just started writing my story. I also had been avoiding telling people. So I hadn't told my friends what had happened to me. And it was like, okay, you know, I guess this is the time. This is this is the time that I have to tell everyone. And I copy and pasted it and put it on the GoFundMe page. And within a total of 30 minutes, it was out there in the world. GoFundMe is a website that helps people raise money. A user makes a web page on GoFundMe, fills out some information, and just like that, they can share the page with their friends and ask for donations. You know, I was really, really explicit, not just like telling my story, but also, you know, really breaking down the numbers. I had a really concrete ask. You know, I thought, okay, you know, I need 150 people to donate $100. You know, I honestly thought that I was going to have to spend hours on the phone calling people and writing handwritten letters and really, really digging in deep to ask people for help. Within three hours of posting, Brian had raised nearly $4,000, and it didn't stop there. In 24 hours, Brian had received donations from 300 people, from $5 to $1,000 each. Brian's friends and acquaintances shared his story on social media. Some of the donors weren't even people he knew personally. They were friends of friends or complete strangers. I can't tell you how many people actually thanked me for asking for help, which really... I underestimated, like, the kindness and love and generosity of the people around me. And, you know, shame on me <laughs> for, for downplaying that. What were they thanking you for? They were thanking me for letting them into my process and into my experience, and they thanked me for letting them do something. It was a bit of a roller coaster because the first 24 hours, I was, I mean, my joy was out the roof. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't believe it. It was just, you know, it was, how is this happening right now? You know, and, and I was getting flooded, flooded with emails, texts, Facebook messages. I mean, I couldn't keep up with how fast this was going. Brian was at Tanu's apartment when he realized he'd raised enough money to completely cover his medical bills. It was one in the afternoon. I remember it very vividly. You know, it was like a sunny, beautiful day out. Sun was coming in through the windows. I'm sitting on the couch and she just looked distraught. You know, I asked her, you know, what's, what's wrong? She said, you know, I've been reading through all of these comments and what people are saying to you publicly on social media. And, you know, she just said, you know, it sounds like your friends are writing what could have been your obituaries. <laughs> that was really the first moment where it really, really sunk in for me the reality of what just happened. It sounds like you had a really profound encounter with your own vulnerability, with your own mortality. It, it, as I'm listening to you, it feels like you're trying to navigate how to live in the world as a more vulnerable person, or at least as a person who's more aware of your vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. You know, I might be in, in the grocery store, and if it is really packed and there's a lot of people, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll all of a sudden just try to crawl within myself. And, you know, I'll feel heavy and I'll feel anxious. And, uh, and in, you know, and in what is such a normal thing to go food shopping. But for some reason, uh, I am, you know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually responding to very normal everyday life situations in a different way. And um, I, I don't know how to crack that. Brian decided to ask for help in another way. He decided to see a therapist. You know, being vulnerable is a scary thing. And, you know, I know even from my own personal experience, you know, you're, you're afraid of what's going to happen when you let people in like that. But uh, vulnerability breeds vulnerability. And uh, when you open up, people are, people are going to step forward and meet you there. Medical bills are the number one cause of personal bankruptcy in the United States. Affordable health care is still completely out of reach for so many, especially those with fewer advantages and connections than Brian. We all need to ask for help at some point. 
let the people around you surprise you. You know, let let the people around you rally for you and pick you up and carry you in the ways that you can't carry yourself. Asking for help may take practice. The advice I was given by each of our guests comes down to this. When you ask, use the word help. It can shift the dynamic and invite helpfulness. If you feel ashamed to ask, talk this through first with someone else so you can ask in an unguarded way that doesn't leave out important parts of the story. Remind yourself that we usually underestimate people's willingness to help and describe the steps you've already taken to address your need. Remind yourself that people love to help. Brian's friends thanked him for asking. People feel good about themselves when they're helpful, so dare to reach out and share your vulnerability. The feeling of gratitude and connection that usually follow make the risk so worth it. So much of the time, deep down, we want others to know what we need without having to ask. We want to be taken care of. But asking for help can be a show of love for yourself. We all deserve to say what we need and be heard. And when we do take the risk of revealing our needs and letting ourselves be seen, it can lead to real intimacy. We'd love for you to join this conversation. If this show inspires you to ask for help, or makes it easier for you to respond when you're asked, or if you'd like to leave a message for one of our guests, please give us a call at 617-600-8419. That's 617-600-8419. And leave a message with your story. Visit us at safespaceradio.com where you can listen to the full interview with Nora Bouchard and get extra tips on asking for help. While you're there, you can subscribe to stay connected to us. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Safe Space Radio. Many thanks to our senior producer, Britt Hansen, program director and editor, Dana Glass, our editorial advisors, Jim Russell and John Bewin, and our reader, Sophie Gould. Thanks, too, to our creative advisory committee and to all our donors who make our work possible and to listeners like you, who give us a reason to make this show. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward. Thanks for listening.